The title of this evening's talk is The Compulsion to Compartmentalize. In other words, the talk will be primarily dedicated to illustrate how we tend to deal with the world by compartmentalizing it. That is to say, by fragmenting it, cutting into it little bits, and then fitting those fragments into the suitable cubic holes in our mind. The most, most conspicuous of those fragments that we relentlessly create is the I, the me, the self. It's a, if not total, at least uh, uh, a tremendous fabrication. We humans live a self-centered life. We struggle to make me into a separate item. An item separate from the totality of things and beings. In order to arrive at this conclusion, we need to cover up the fact that our singularity is actually the byproduct of our interactions with the world, with others. That is to say, we are not separate in reality. Never mind reality. Take me. All along my life, I've, much of my life, not all of my life, all along much of my life, I've tend to use all those around me, starting with my three sisters when we were all quite little, as reference point, points for the construction of who I thought I was. This compulsion to construct separate entities, of course, is not limited to the construction of me. Categorization also runs rampant when we engage in distinguishing the good from the bad. We take those categories as being objective. Although more often than not, they are turn out to be simply a gimmick to reinforce the separation between me, the good one, and them, the bad ones. Or if we are into religion, then the tendency is to see my tradition as the one who got it right, and the other traditions as having gotten things wrong, if not terribly wrong. Never, never mind that all religions come from the same fountainhead. Never mind that Christianity 
Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, etc., are fully compatible with each other in the basic intent. And yet, we are still inclined to use whatever differences we find as a, an excuse for confrontation. Of course, compartmentalization goes much further than this. It's not only about separation, separating me from you, us from them, good from bad, in order to take sides. It's also about seeing the whole world as being made up of just a bunch of unrelated items. It's about seeing each plant, each animal, each organ of ourselves, for instance, as separate. And even seeing each aspect of the inanimate world as separate. How do we do this chopping up? We do it largely through language. Language becomes a scalpel with which you dissect the world into separate items. For instance, it's true that it may be convenient to designate this area where I'm sitting here as the rostrum, right? But in doing so, so we may, may be carving it out I may be carving it out, drawing a line there, as if it were an entity separate from the rest, as if I was different from each one of you, as if this chair was different from other chairs. Yes, of course, it has this, this green thing to see. Yeah, it's different. Sure. <laughs> Let, just, just one more example to make quite clear what I'm talking about. It concerns what happens when we look at the sky. Of course, we can look up at the sky in a clear day, and we can admire the vastness, the proliferation of stars, if it's at night. But should we engage in studying the stars, our priority becomes how do we bunch them together in groups or constellation and then we can assign specific names to them like the Big Dipper or the Southern Cross or Sagittarius etc. etc. Yet the stars they attribute to each constellation do not have any more in common with each other than they have in common with other stars. Except for the designs that we project onto them. Take the Southern Cross, for instance. It's made up of four 
stars connected. It's it's not seen from here. It's seen from the southern hemisphere, but you probably know about it. Uh, it's and these four stars are connected by the image of the cross. But they could just as well be connected by um, a four-sided figure. Only problem is that if we do that, then we'd have to call it the southern quadrilateral, which doesn't sound so good as a southern cross. Okay. So, by inviting language to stand in between us and reality, we open the door for our prevailing culture to distort the real. All we need to do is create new categories and assign them at will. That's when a black person becomes a nigger. I mean, even the tone of voice is important here. Or when our enemy becomes a terrorist. Generally, it's pretty arbitrary, you know. <coughs> you know. The very same people who assign the label terrorist to others tend to be the ones who do more killing, or at least equal killing, than the terrorists. The assignment of names in order to form to turn concepts into a new reality is called reification, that's a standard English language word. It allows us to populate our mind selectively. In the end, heaven knows what's real and what's not. Talking about conversation, let me share with you this little story. A few years ago, our oldest daughter brought me a gift, a little book entitled The Art of Civilized Conversation. You can, you can clearly get a hint of why, right? <laughs> she implied that I needed some substantial remedial education in that area. <laughs> and of course, we both laughed at it. It was, it was a very friendly gift. But I tried to read it, you know. And I learned a few extraordinary things. Let me share a quote from that book. And it says, The details of your interior life are most likely only interested, interesting to a paid psychotherapist. <laughs> <laughs> the paid is also important. You see? If you pay, it's okay. <laughs> you can, you can but otherwise, don't go around telling the reality of your inner life, you know, to anybody. Cover it up. Page after page, the book is filled with examples of what to say, 
what not to say in response to all kinds of circumstances. I'm not going to go into the details here, but let me just say, as you probably already know without me having to say, that I've flanked the book's remedial training totally. Okay, so language is often used to fit our thinking into the mold of our culture. It invites us over and over again to think within the box as the saying goes. I used to be a scientist, as some of you know, so this struggle, I know very well this struggle about thinking within the confines of the box in science. And it's been going on in science for a long time. Most of the time, the inside-the-box mentality prevails, but, but it hasn't been easy. And in order to accommodate things within the box, science has often had to create different separate boxes in the same area, which applies simultaneously. Let me illustrate. Sorry, you know, if you're not uh, scientifically inclined, just put up with me for the next 10 minutes or so. But think of what happens in, in mathematics when we try to find the square root of a negative number. I don't know whether this has been part of your training, basic training. It's a funny thing, you know. Let me explain. Calculating the square root is a reverse operation of calculating square. That is, the reverse of multiplying a number by itself. Now, the problem is that multiplying a, a negative number by itself, according to the rules of mathematics, gives you a positive number. So, minus 3 times minus 3 is 9, positive 9. So, how do we get the square root of negative 9? Aha! The mathematicians solved this, if you remember from your schooling, or if you covered it in your schooling. They invented a whole new category of numbers, which they labeled imaginary numbers. So, if you want to get the square root of minus 9, the answer is imaginary 3, which is spelled out an i and a 3. In other words, they invented a new box to fit 
or didn't fit. In physics, as any of you who studied any physics may know very well, I'm not going deep into the issue, it's simply an example. The logical impasses have been plentiful. I mentioned just one. Concerning the fact that studying the electron, in some experiments, the electron behaves as if it were a particle. In other experiments, it behaves as if it were a wave. But these two things are completely different descriptions. They are incompatible. So, after much argument, the physicists have to give up. They made one box of thought for the particle, another box for the wave, and let it go at that. And yes, they shifted, used the box that was most convenient to use. When I was a scientist, my area of expertise was biology. There things haven't really gotten, so far as I know, of course, as far as to the point where logical contradictions might emerge. Still, the eagerness in biology to think within a box is quite manifest. Let me use as an example my older sister, uh, who is now in her early 90s, still very lucid and intelligent, and a few months ago, she got very excited by an article she read in the Scientific American. It was a November issue, last November of the Scientific American. And so she copied it and sent me the copy, thinking that I would be thrilled. Well, I was in a way, sure. My sister is an MD and did research in medicine during her active life. The article in question was about the relationship between meditation and the anatomy and physiology of the brain. And the article that I read with interest, of course, shows that meditation practice would seem to activate certain areas of the brain preferential. The author of the article then proceeds to draw, to construct a map of mental activities, checking out how the mapped areas are affected by meditation. I used to get very excited about an approach like this without realizing how that implicitly implicitly support seeing the brain as a fragmented entity. My sister's interest in this approach reminded me that when she was a medical student, 
and we, we all, the whole family was living in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. She used to visit the local insane asylum as part of her training. And one day, as a perk from one of her visit, visits, she brought home for keeps a jar containing the brain of one of the diseased inmates. And she spent in the living of a home countless hours trying to decipher what were the characteristics of such an insane brain. I understand and I was fascinated at the time. It would appear to be quite handy to be able to draw the map, a map of all that goes on in our mind, including meditation, including insanity. Handy, yes, but isn't the expectation that this knowledge, that the deep knowledge can be fitted into a mappable cubic hole, an unwarranted preconception. In conclusion, I've illustrated how the, in the course of daily life and of scientific inquiry, we tend to chop up our experience into bits and pieces and store away each fragment in a separate compartment, in a separate cubic hole in our mind. And so our thinking ends up confined to the boundaries of these compartments, giving us little or no opportunity to appreciate the boundlessness of life as it flows. True, I, ex I, I agree with this objection. The flow of life, or actually the flow of life and death, because they flow together parallel, can get quite scary. So, it's understandable that to protect ourselves, we try to withdraw from that flow. To pretend that each one of us, each item, occupies, inhabits a separate cubic hole. I don't know whether you're familiar with a, a writer called Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He's a Nobel laureate, a writer from Colombia, South America. I love the way Garcia Marquez puts it, and I quote him. I've discovered that my obsession 
that everything be in its place, each matter in its time, each word in its style, was not the reward from an orderly mind, but quite the contrary. A system of simulation that I've invented in order to cover up my disorderly nature. And it's clear to me that although Garcia Marquez is willing to blame himself for performing this simulation, he's not alone in this performing. We all do it, as I've been arguing all along this talk. Indeed, it's so much easier to contrive an appearance of order in our mind than to confront the unreliability of the real. But is this the way to run our life, lives? Should we continue to pretend time and time again that all there is is there, stowed away in the compartments that we have assigned to its bits and pieces? Of course. But then, what's the alternative? Our practice is the alternative. And in tomorrow morning's talk, I'll try to articulate a more precise and specific <coughs> answer to that question. But for now, let's just sit for a few minutes in silence, letting life flow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.